8th of May 2019, Ireland declared a climate emergency. In a global context, the World Economic Forum now considers extreme weather events and the failure to prevent or prepare for climate change as the greatest risks facing society today. But how did we get here? And what has led us to this unprecedented situation? What are the processes that control our climate and drive the changes observed today and predicted in the future? Hello and welcome to the new Met Aaron podcast. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. And in today's episode, we will explore the fundamentals of climate change and its impact on Ireland and the world around us. To help us discuss this topic, we are delighted to be joined by Met Aaron's Head of Climatology and Observations, Seamus Walsh. Seamus, it's so great to have you here with us today on the Met Aaron podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into meteorology and your career trajectory in Met Aaron? Well, I have to go back a long way, almost uh, to a climate era to get back to where I started, which was in back in 1982, just after I came out of college. Uh, I was always interested, I suppose, in environmental matters, and I had done a, a degree in, in experimental physics just across the road, literally here in Trinity College, Dublin. So when I finished my degree, literally I had a decision to make, would I go into further research or start working, I decided to say that I wouldn't be a teacher. So just around that time, uh, the Irish Met Service, as it was at the time, was looking for meteorologists. So I applied for a job and in due course, I actually was successful and I got got the job. And my start actually coincided with one of the biggest weather events in in the 1980s, the snowstorm of early 1982. And I was due to start actually that January, but my starting was actually delayed because of the post couldn't get through because of the snow. So that's, <laughs> at that time we had a, um, a training school in Galway. So I was catching the train from Dublin down to Galway uh, that morning that, towards the end of January. And I can remember there was still some snow lying on the ground. And that was, I suppose, my, f- my first introduction on my first day of work to weather in action. Did you start off in forecasting or...? Yeah, following training, I, w- I was uh, assigned to Shannon Airport, which all of meteorologists were in those days. And I was there for close to a year. And then I was uh, transferred back up to Dublin to the... Uh, Central Analysis and Forecast uh, Office where, where you now work yourself. So I was there for the most of the next 20 years forecasting. And then, and then you kind of made the transition into into climate. Yeah, well, actually, I, I or, took a, a, a slight detour <laughs> before that. I, I, uh, f- after I finished forecasting, I actually went into, into the research area, into mm-hmm. the agricultural meteorology. And I was there for maybe three or, or four years. And that was a nice little uh, segue from forecasting into research because it was still quite closely aligned to um, providing products to, to end users. And then after about three or four years working in agricultural meteorology, I worked into the, I moved into the, the, the climatology division and I've been, I've been there ever since. What is it about climate that interests you? Wow. Well, I suppose I was always a numbers person. And I mean, it's it's the job from heaven for somebody who likes numbers, you know. But of course, like there's a very serious side to it too. And, and you know, now uh, at the time, say even when I went into it, all of this, uh, this uh, world uh, climate change crisis that we're facing, that was becoming more evident. So it was really good to be able to kind of match my skills to what needed to be done in that area. You're probably one of the best placed people to answer this question then. And I think it's a question you've been asked 10 million times. What is the difference between weather and climate? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. You're, you're correct. I have been asked, <laughs> and I'm sure you've been asked it many times too, but you, I will... It's I hard will, to explain. I will, I will provide my answer. <laughs> I think you'll, you'll yeah. explain it better. <laughs> well, I suppose in very s- simple terms, you know, Weather is what you experience on a day-to-day basis and climate is what you would expect on, over the very long long term. So there's a few ways we have of describing this. One is uh, weather is what you get and climate is what you expect. So climate tends to look at things over a long period of time. So the average temperature, say, for May would be about 12 degrees, but it could range anything between, say, 8 to 20. So that's what you get. You, you get... A range. A range between 8 and 20, but the average, if you were to say next May, what will the temperature be like? You'd probably say about 12 12 degrees because that's the average, but it could be anything within a range expanding out from that. So in the the broad sense, weather is just what we call the day-to-day variation in the atmosphere and climate is that variation kind of smooths out over time. So you take an average usually over about 30 years, which is 
shorter than my working career so far. So <laughs> I've uh, worked for more than one standard normal climatological period. So climate is obviously such a broad topic as, as is climate change. And, uh, but today we're going to try and focus on the fundamentals of climate change and focus on the well-established facts in that area. It'll be an initial look, I guess, and then we'll try and revisit that throughout the series, I think, through this podcast. And to, to start with that, when we talk about climate change, we often hear the phrase the the greenhouse effect. But there is a, a natural greenhouse effect, and it's quite important. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the reason why the Earth actually exists at all in a suitable form uh, for, for, our, for life and our ecosystems is because it actually acts as a natural uh, greenhouse. So that is, it, it traps heat in. So if it weren't for the atmosphere on the Earth... The Earth would be about 40 degrees colder than it is now, so it wouldn't be able to sustain life. And that's because of the the atmosphere which traps in heat coming in from the sun. So if you think about it, the Earth is kind of a, a ball, a spinning ball, and the energy that we have comes from the sun. So that energy from the sun would just be reflected or leak away if we didn't have an atmosphere to keep some of the heat in. And that's really the role that the, the atmosphere plays in the Earth's climate system. And what uh, what would be the major gases then that contribute to um, the natural greenhouse effect? Well, the atmosphere, of course, is mostly made up of nitrogen and oxygen. And then there are smaller, what we would call trace trace gases, like carbon dioxide, uh, uh, water vapour or methane. And these are the most critical gases that are involved in really the, the exchange of heat through the atmosphere. So the Earth uh, takes in radiation from the sun. It's basically most of it in the form of sunlight. So most of the Earth's uh, heat yeah. incoming energy comes from, it all comes from the sun. And most of it is in the visible part of the spectrum, which we can see. But also, all the time to the Earth is actually losing heat because if, if not, it would just continue to warm. And of course, that would become very unstable. So all of this incoming heat from the sun has to go somewhere. And it's radiated out in the form of infrared radiation from the Earth's surface. And of course, infrared radiation, we can't see it. So it's kind of, it's kind of like a hidden uh, way in which heat uh, ex- escapes out of the Earth's uh, system. And because we can't see it, we don't, we don't think of it in the same way, maybe on a day-to-day basis as we do uh, the incoming radiation uh, from the sun. And the thing about infrared radiation is when it travels out through the atmosphere, some gases are very, very good at trapping infrared radiation, and they are carbon dioxide, methane, and water vapour. And these are what we call the, me- the, the greenhouse gases. Because if we're increasing the concentration of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it means that the balance of the radiation is, is altered. And not all of this, the uh, radiation energy coming in from the sun can escape. So that gives will give rise over a period to an increase in the temperature of the earth as a as a as a whole. So the important thing is we need to have a balance between the radiation coming in from the sun and what's escaping out from the earth's surface. So the greenhouse gases they, they kind of sound like they act a bit like a valve essentially they're sort of allowing all this heat energy to flow in one direction and then when it's trying to flow back out from the earth they they're restricting some of that back out. Well that's a very good way of putting it on I will use that in the future <laughs> myself actually. <laughs> when we talk about present day climate change we're referring then to almost an unbalancing or an enhancement of that of that natural greenhouse effect. That's exactly what's happening. So if we go back, say, over the past close to one million years, uh, we would have had uh, levels of carbon dioxide, say, in the atmosphere of about 280 parts per million. Now, I don't want to get too much in, into numbers, but since... Uh, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been increasing. And... In the last 800,000 years or so, the level was fairly static at about 280 parts per million. And now we're at about 415 parts per million just in the last couple of weeks. So that's an almost 50% increase in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So just to just to go back on that a little bit, obviously we've talked about carbon dioxide. Is, is, that, the, is that the most important of the greenhouse gases or... Or are there other ones that we're also concerned about? Well, it's it's the it probably is the most important, but there are two other gases which are very significant. One is uh, water vapor, so that's water which exists as a as a gas in the atmosphere, and water vapor is also quite a good kind of absorber of radiation in the infrared spectrum. So one of the 
things that happens as the Earth's temperature rises is the Earth's capacity to hold water vapour increases. So the warmer the Earth gets, the more water vapour the atmosphere can hold. So that's what we would call a a positive feedback, that the warmer it gets, the more water vapour we have, which increases the greenhouse effect, essentially. So water vapour is another very, is is, is a critical uh, greenhouse gas. And the other one is uh, methane. So methane is much has a much, much shorter lifespan in the atmosphere than carbon uh, dioxide. It only lasts for maybe 20 to 30 years. Uh, but it's uh, the rate at which it's, it's, its capacity to absorb uh, outgoing infrared radiation is also much, much stronger than that of carbon dioxide. So it's a smaller trace gas in the atmosphere, but its effects, a small amount of methane will do a lot more uh, damage than a small amount of carbon dioxide. So, so essentially, the the greenhouse effect is is something that's seems to be based on very well understood science, well understood physics. We we see the evidence of it every day because we're actually able to live on the planet. And then this enhanced greenhouse effect essentially is we're we're pumping something that's known to trap heat in large quantities into the atmosphere. So it's it's no surprise that that uh, we're essentially insulating ourselves at the moment. Yeah, well, I think the 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 underlying lying science behind what happens when you, you know, put more particularly carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That's very, very well understood and the effects of it are very well understood. So the message is quite clear that putting carbon dioxide, increasing amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it's bad for the planet. It causes uh, increase in temperature and of course we know there are all kinds of knock-on effects following on from that to various ecosystems and, you know, sea level rise, all of the other things which we'll be talking about as, as we go through the podcast. Absolutely. So like one might be forgiven for thinking that the idea of the role played by the atmosphere and CO2 in warming the planet is a relatively new like science. But in fact, it it, it goes way back. Like, yeah, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the historical? Yeah, it sure does. I mean, uh, as long ago as, as the middle mid 19th century, you know, s- scientists were at that stage kind of experimenting as yeah. chemistry and physics and in, when the instrumental records began, people began to look at this and knew, people knew from before the turn of the 19th into 20th century, people were al- already uh, speculating as to the effects of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And one of the earliest of these was John Tyndall, who was an Irish scientist from County Carlo. It was he who first described the, 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 the Tyndall effect, which explains why the sky is, is blue. So we have an Irish link there. And then in the early uh, 20th century, a Swedish uh, scientist called Arrhenius was the first to, to predict that large increase in carbon dioxide would cause increases in the Earth's, Earth's temperature. So, I mean, the physics and the underlying science has been around for, for quite a long time. Yeah. And then as we went through the 20th century, when you know, we got into, say, up to about the 1950s, when modelling, mathematical models began to be developed and the computing power enabled models of the atmosphere uh, to be developed. These models then began to show the same thing, that you know, if you increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you're going to cause a, a subsequent increase in the uh, temperature of the Earth. There was a guy in the 1970s, John Sawyer, and he, he did one of the first studies about attributing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to, to, uh, to human activity and, and and he made a very accurate prediction, actually, of how the rate of global warming would likely uh, take place between the 1970s and the 2000s based on how much emissions were going on. And that turned out to be to be quite accurate. There's a concept which, which we talk about called climate sensitivity, and that's related to uh, how much of a temperature increase we would get as a result of a doubling of the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, we're not quite certain what that is, but it's somewhere between two and four to four and a half degrees Celsius. So that's kind of the scale of the challenge that presents us. If you think that already the carbon levels have increased from 280 to 415, and we already have a one degree rise on foot of that, that if if the levels continue to rise, we'll be in serious trouble. And even uh, in light of, uh, you know, global agreements to try and limit carbon emissions, we're still facing, at best it looks like, a 1.5 degree rise in global temperatures. And that's really a best case scenario at this stage and that depends on a lot of international cooperation and governments getting together and making really hard decisions to ensure that carbon levels are kept at levels to ensure that we don't go beyond 1.5 degrees. So those carbon levels, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned earlier about the, the instrument record. So in other words, 
since we've been able to monitor the world around us in, in our society. And, and today we have some really good systems and networks that allow us to do that, in particular to look at uh, how the atmosphere is behaving. And for this is also the case for, for measuring carbon dioxide. And there's a great record in Hawaii, and this is, this is quite important. So observations are absolutely critical in, in determining you know, how the climate is changing. Uh, so the, the record to which you've alluded, the Keeling curve, is quite prescient because... This uh, observation record was began before the climate science became popular or necessary or whatever. So it's going since the late 1950s. It's the longest running uh, carbon dioxide record, instrumental one, which we have. And it is shown on a seasonal basis and it's there every day available for people to see that you can uh, go on and check on any day the level of carbon at any time over the last uh, 50 to 60 years. And that's really a critical record that we have. But of course, it's not the only one. We're depending also on, we're, we depend also on, you know, instrumental records which date back to the 1850s. And here in Ireland, we have quite a good record of observatories which were set up around about that time. We have records in Armagh which go back to 1795. The Phoenix Park goes back to about 1829. Valencia Observatory from 1868. I'm using a lot of numbers again, I know. But I'm just saying that these (laughs) records are critically important because if we want to know what's happening to climate in the future, we need to know what happened in the past. At the beginning of those measurements in in 1958, they they had an initial measurement of 313 parts per million. So it's basically a a measure of the concentration of carbon dioxide. And and just this month, that has risen to 415. So that seems like, you know, a, a very rapid increase but it's a relatively short period of time. It's over 60 years. Um, Are there ways that we can go back further in time to look at carbon dioxide levels and to see, is this really unusual? What was the behaviour like in the past? Yeah, sure. There are many ways which we can do this. One one of the most famous ways, of course, is by by taking ice cores from... uh, the Arctic and the Antarctic, and from that you can, you can, you can date different sections in the ice core, and you can analyze them and find out what carbon dioxide concentrations were like going going backwards in time for the past. Certainly, they've gone back at least uh, eight hundred thousand years, and you know the steady state, if you want to call it that, amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in our present climate system was. And in the pre-industrial era, about 280 uh, parts per million. So even by the time Keeling had started, it had gone up all. It had gone up by about mm. 10 or 15 percent. Even by the time by the late 1950s, and of course, it's continued to rise on a more or less kind of almost a linear way, steady increase since then. So none of the um, uh, measures that have been put in place to try and uh, slow down the rate of carbon emissions really have have become evident in the observational data so far. You could also infer what the air temperature was from from those ice cores. And we see that the temperature record actually uh, compares quite well with the with the CO2 record in that they rise and fall at the same time. And if if there's these rises and falls taking place before human society was established, I mean, what could be the reason for that? Yeah, well, there, there are a number of reasons why the Earth's temperature has been either higher or lower at, at times in, in, in the past. Uh, one of the well there are variations say for example in the Earth's orbit there are three aspects of the Earth's orbit that vary firstly the Earth isn't a its orbit isn't a perfect sphere it's more like an ellipse that's kind of shaped like a an oval mm-hmm. uh, now it's not very oval it's you know it doesn't change very much but at certain times over periods of tens or hundreds of thousands of years, the Earth is nearer to the sun than it otherwise would be. Another aspect is that the Earth's tilt on its axis also uh, changes, and that's not a constant either. So, for example, eventually the North Star won't be the North Star. We'll be looking at Vega as the new North Star, but that's a couple of hundred thousand years away. So these slight variations in the Earth's uh, orbit and uh, the the tilt, the Earth precesses around its axis as well. So these slight variations and wobbles uh, we have a fancy name for those, of course, they're called the Milankovitch cycles. Mm-hmm. And these are three different aspects of the Earth's orbit which kind of superimpose on each other and give give rise over several hundred thousands of years to um, kind of hotter and colder periods. And, you know, you, you can analyse kind of the differences that these 
changes in the Earth's orbit make to the radiation balance for coming in from the sun. And these correlate, correlate quite well with past ice ages and, and warm periods. And even in like in 800,000 years of Mel- Milankovitch cycles, um, we still have not ever reached the concentration of CO2 that we have in the no. atmosphere right now. And I know we can't see anything here, but if you were to, if you were to draw... If I, if I were to show you a graph of the of the carbon dioxide, it just goes off the scale at the end like a big exponential curve. It just shoots for the sky at the end. We'll put a picture up on, on the website. I yep. think, you know. Since the Industrial Revolution, how much has the temperature actually risen? Well, since the Industrial Revolution now, we're just, just about reaching a one degree rise in the mean global temperature uh, since, since pre-industrial times, which is pretty significant considering that uh, you know, last year, uh, the IPCC released a report on the 1.5 degrees. So at the Paris Accord, it was agreed that they would try and the world community would try and limit temperature rise to two degrees Celsius by the end of the, of, of the current century. And at the same time, the IPCC, which is the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, also decided to ask for the scientists to produce a report. And what will be the difference between, say, a 1.5 degree rise and a 2 degree rise. So the 1.5 degree rise uh, report was published last year. And it is, it's quite devastating in many ways as to the effects of, of what will happen in terms of sea level rise, increased desertification, changes in rainfall patterns. But, you know, I it doesn't look like we're going to stop there, though. Yeah, well, this <laughs> is the, the thing. Moment. It looks like we're not going to... It, it, to, to achieve a 1.5 degree rise means a lot of really hard decisions would need to be made very, very quickly in the next 10 to 12 years to try and achieve what we call carbon neutrality by about 2050. So it's, you know, a 1.5 degree rise is the best we can hope for at this stage. We already have about a degree rise and we also have built into the climate system almost another half a degree because of the way in which the oceans absorb heat Mm. A lot of the excess heat is actually stored in the oceans. Up to 90% of the heat is stored in the oceans. And even if we were to stabilise the amount of carbon dioxide, that excess heat in the oceans would continue to be released back into the atmosphere for quite a considerable amount of time. So the oceans can store a huge amount of heat because the water takes a lot of energy to heat up, right? It's it's like the, the kettle in your house. Yeah. It uses a huge amount of electricity because... It takes a lot of yeah. energy. So if you if you want to if you want to heat your room, you'll just yeah. turn on a, 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 an electric heater and it'll heat a big space of room very very quickly. But if you want to heat a kettle of water, you need a three kilowatt. It kettle. takes forever to uh, boil. Yeah, <laughs> and the same also happens that if you turn off your heating, the room will cool down very quickly. But the water will take a long long time to cool, and that heat that's like the oceans letting the heat back out into the atmosphere. So even though like. Uh, it's you know it may seem like an insignificant one, like one degree Celsius rise. Um, the huge heat capacity of the global oceans and the fact that the Earth is constantly also trying to redistribute its own heat from like in the normal weather yeah. patterns. Well, like course, yeah. one, rising that by one degree is huge. Yeah, and you mentioned there about the Earth trying to redistribute heat, and of course that's what happens. That the Earth is like uh, it's like a big draft essentially that. If if you're in, in your you've got a, your house nice and warm and you open the hole there, cool air rushes in. Rushes in. So the Earth is the same because it's a, it, it's a sphere. For, it incoming radiation from the sun it heats at the equator more so than at the poles. So we have hot and cold, hot at the equator and cold at the poles. So the Earth's weather and climate system is essentially just trying to redistribute that heat throughout the globe. So we get cold air coming, trying to move southwards and warmer trying to move northwards. And that's essentially what causes our weather and climate systems, that mm. imbalance in, in, in the heating systems. And that one degree Celsius, that's a global average, right? With, with that sort of redistribution of heat that's happening around the world, you're seeing certain areas that are actually heating up a lot more. Yeah. Of course, yeah. And one of one of the things that's critical and, and for, for we live here in Ireland that, that could be quite important is the fact that you know the Arctic region is heating up much much faster than anywhere else, and that really is a cause for concern because all of our weather systems, you know, our climate system, if if it's stable, it's dependent on the flow of heat from the equator to the Arctic and from cold air coming down from the Arctic, and of course the rate and the patterns that evolve on foot of that depend on the difference in temperature between the two regions. So if you significantly alter 
the temperature, say in the Arctic, the temperature difference between the Arctic and the equator becomes less. And that could have serious effects on weather patterns. The weather patterns which, we, which we've come to expect might alter and we could get different types of weather patterns. So if we want to make a prediction of what air temperature is going to do in the future, I guess we need to have some idea or to make an assumption about what our carbon emissions will be doing in the sure, future. Sure, yeah. So basically the, the way uh, the, the international sci- scientific community approaches this problem is to have uh, different scenarios, for example, you, there are now four scenarios that are kind of ex- accepted that the uh, international community and climate modelling community use. Uh, when climate modellers are approaching this problem, they need to kind of make estimations of how much carbon dioxide there will be in the atmosphere for, for within the future. And there are four different uh, scenarios which they use. They're called representative concentration pathways. So there are four of these. One, one, one is a best case scenario that if all, all the countries in the world agree to uh, reduce and become carbon neutral, that's, that's the best way. Uh, and that's, you know, really the best case scenario, which would produce, say, the 1.5 degrees uh, towards the end of the century. There are three other scenarios. There are two middle ones. And then there's a, a RCP 8.5, it's called. It's the business as usual scenario. If no action is taken whatsoever, and that is the if you want to call it the worst end of the spectrum. So RCP 8.5 would give uh, an increase in mean global temperature of about 4.5 degrees by the end of the 21st century, whereas the lowest one, which is RPC 2.5, would give an increase in global temperature of about 1.5 towards the end of the century. And there are two medium emission scenarios in between, which are probably a little bit more realistic than either of the two extremes. So one of the things dealing with this is that uh, we like to, give confidence estimates with these projections. So rather than kind of, you know, because if if, if you're trying to um, provide information to people in, in, say, politicians or policymakers, well, they actually want to know, they don't want to know a range really, or they want to know, well, what's the most likely outcome? So we have kind of what we call, you know, uh, Confidence, high, confidence intervals to go with these. Low, yeah. yeah, exactly. High confidence, low confidence. So this gives us, you know, a, a, a method of communicating the fact that there is quite a range of possible scenarios out there in, in, in the future. But we do know, like, within the range that there's a, a very bad range that we don't be any near, anywhere near, but we have a, a specific target to try and keep the global temperature rise below Two, 2 degrees Celsius and if possible to 1.5. So we know with a lot of confidence what we need to do in terms of carbon emissions to achieve that. So in weather forecasting, the forecast skill, well, you know yourself, it tends to fall off a cliff or at least diminish, uh, you know, quite a lot after around 10 to 14 yeah. days. It's basically because of Matt's chaos theory. But um, how can we have confidence in the climate predictions then? Because these are forecasting, you know, 80 to 100 years ahead. Well, I suppose it's really because we're looking at two different problems. For for weather, it's what we call an initial value problem. And that is that, you know, to forecast the weather, say, 10 days ahead, you have to have a starting point in, in the weather. So once you have your starting point, you can use the, the, the physical equations of the atmosphere and the computer model to predict ahead. The difficulty with this is that you don't actually know all of the initial conditions at any given place or time. So you're to a, lot of, to a large extent, you're making estimates. They're quite good usually, but the errors in these estimates tend to propagate and through the model. Uh, so by the time you get to about 10 to 14 days, you're reaching what we call you know, the physical limit of the model. Climate modelling is, is, is different. We're not really look, looking or too concerned with, with the initial conditions. We're more or less looking at kind of average conditions over a long, long period of time and the amount of energy that's available within the system. So in climate models we're looking at, it's called a boundary condition problem rather than an initial value. So we're looking at how much energy there is available within a system rather than what it started at. So with a, with a climate model, you could spin it up very quickly to a solid state and then you would, you, to a steady state, and then you would gradually, say, increase the amount of energy within the system. And that's what the difference is, that you're actually just looking at um, a mean value over a number of years and just slowly increasing the amounts of energy available within that system. When you say, when you say spin up, what do you mean by that? Well, when you start off a model, a model, it, it, you're, you're, you're beginning kind of from uh, year, year zero, and it takes a while of the model running for it to achieve kind of an equilibrium 
in, in terms of modeling time, you have to run the model for a number of years uh, to to get it to achieve kind of like a steady state where a, you're a happy. Realistic a realistic A realistic uh, model of the atmosphere. Like, you know, for a car, you put the key, you put the key in the, the driver's seat and, and you just turn the key and it takes, it's like a... Yeah. And then it, and then the engine starts yeah. running. So it's it's kind of just that it has to make all the connections. And so with the weather model, we know after a few days because the weather has happened, whether it was you know how accurate it was. For a climate model, we're obviously forecasting for things potentially say to the end of the century or further. Yeah. So it's quite difficult to assess how accurate it is. How, are the yeah. ways we can we can determine if the model is actually accurate? Yeah, we can, of course. I think I already mentioned, say, the value of past observations. So when we're developing climate models, we, of course, can use past data to to validate the climate model, essentially, to look at how good the climate models performed in the past. And we can also, uh, say, run climate models and we can uh, tweak the amount of, say, carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere. By doing this, we know, for example, using climate models, that if we hadn't increased the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere throughout the 20th century, that temperature now would be about one degree less than, 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 it, than, is now. than it is otherwise. Another way in which we, we deal with this kind of uh, the, the future part of the climate model is we run what's what are called ensembles of models. And that is, we, we ch- again, we change things ever so slightly in models and we kind of get a spread of uh, model that gives a, a number of outcomes. So we can do kind of then a statistical analysis on the outputs and we can give kind of percentage likelihoods of different things happening in, in, in the future. And then we can look at the one that's most likely to happen, but also take into account that maybe there are outliers and other extremes might happen as well. Okay, so essentially you're, you're running a model uh, multiple times, maybe with slight differences, and then you're kind of seeing how likely the same outcome is what, what if your model is showing all the same outcomes or slight differences or big differences. Yeah, that, that's more or less it. And in fact, it's quite analogous to what we actually are moving into in, in a weather forecasting uh, context as well at the moment. So we've looked a lot there at air temperature, but obviously there are going to be uh, a lot more effects on, on the climate system as a whole. So the ocean we've mentioned has been absorbing a huge amount of heat, almost acting like a, a buffer in a way to climate change by absorbing all this heat. But I'm assuming the oceans are heating up as well. Yes, the oceans are are heating up as well, and there are a number of, of you know downstream effects effects of that. First is to, obviously to the ecosystems of the oceans themselves. Secondly, as the uh, oceans uh, absorb heat, they actually expand. It's just a thermal property of oceans that it's like most thing, most physical things. If you heat them, they expand. So about fifty percent of the sea level rise we're expecting is actually just purely going to come from the fact that the oceans are getting warmer and that the water volume itself is expanding. And the other part of the sea level rise, of course, is coming from melting of uh, ice caps and, and, and glaciers. So there are two main aspects to, to the oceans that were, and, you know, critically, of course, about 40% of the world's population live in cities that are quite close to coastal regions. So, you know, increased sea level is going to be quite a, a serious, major issue, a yeah. major issue for, for low-lying coastal cities. Right, because the, the value that we hear sort of by the end of the century, approximately half a metre of sea level rise, and it, it may not sound like a lot, but as you say, there are a large uh, populations of people already living at that level. Yeah, I mean, there, uh, we've all heard stories about the Pacific Islands and places like Bangladesh that are particularly prone to issues like this. And of course, it's not just the, you know, the half a metre rise by the end of the century. You've got then add on to when these things, uh, when the sea level has risen, that there still will be storm surges, which will take it up even a little bit higher again. So, you know, th- these are critical, critical matters for the world to deal with. And it's very, very hard to... Um, you know, convince people that, that you know, for something that might might happen after 2050, you need to be taking steps now to either mitigate against mitigate it, it or yeah. put in some adapt- adaptation strategy to ensure. So huge investments are actually needed to kind of future-proof uh, a lot of the world's cities against this. We know that the oceans have, have absorbed um, large amounts of CO2, which has helped them to limit atmospheric concentrations and like approximately 30% of anthropogenic carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, but this has also contributed to drastic changes in the composition of the ocean's chemical makeup. But there is actually a limit to the amount of CO2 that the oceans can hold, which poses its own conundrum because you, uh, you get it 
could get a feedback mechanism there um, that the ocean might also become a source of, of CO2. Yeah, it's it's one of these things. that it, This is what happens, I, I guess, when you start messing with a system that's in equilibrium. Mm. It can only go so far before maybe something catastrophic happens. Um, but in terms of the oceans and absorbing CO2, one a big uh, downstream effect of this, of course, is, is, is the increased acidification in the oceans. And that, could, again, could have devastating the coral reefs, all kinds of, you know, uh, ecosystems in, in the o- in marine ecosystems that will suffer because of this. Plus the fact, of course, that they're actually getting warmer. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the oceans probably hadn't, haven't received as much attention, probably because people don't live there. We're, the first po- port point of concern is probably going to be, you know, increased des- desertification, where this might cause a lot of migration. Uh, increased rain or changed rainfall patterns, increased, you know, intensity of monsoons or hurricanes, things like that. But, you know, because people don't live in the oceans, I guess, it has, now it has received quite a lot of attention in the past couple of years, thanks, I think, in a large part to David Attenborough's work in that area. And it's great to see that people like that, that people are finally paying attention and, you know, trying trying to take action. You mentioned how there's this thermal expansion of the water taking place and that's leading to sea level rise. And then the other half of that sea level rise is due to the melting of of snow and ice. Um, And glaciers actually are are quite a good indicator of climate change. Yes, yes, they are. And in fact, one of the things which brought it home to me was when I was uh, on holidays in Canada a couple of years ago and I went to the Columbia ice fields and went out walking on one of the glaciers. And all along they have markers where this glacier was here in 1980, here in 1990, 2010 it was here. And, you know, you can actually physically see it with your own eyes that the glaciers are actually retreating. And that's, you know, that's a real... Uh, it's it's like the canary in the coal mine to a certain exactly. extent. This is a sign of what's happening, you know. And uh, you know the uh, the cryosphere, as it's as it's called technically, is the, the colder regions of of the Earth. These are areas again. It's somewhat like the oceans. Not a lot of people live there. Hasn't been getting a huge amount of attention, although scientifically it does. But for the man on the street, you know, you know, there, melting ice caps or melting glaciers probably isn't going to affect many people. But it really is such such a key. Uh, indicator that the climate is changing and uh, it does have an effect for example the, we've all probably heard or people will be aware about the, the ice cap on Greenland melting so you know there are lots of implications for that uh, all of this uh, cold fresh water coming into the North Atlantic has the potential to alter the circulation patterns in the North Atlantic and that's what we depend on to give us our mild temperate climate now again uh, as we go into the future, we're not exactly certain what's going to happen, but there certainly are signs that the circulation in, in the Atlantic will, will weaken because of that. And I guess on a local scale as well, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about how uh, maybe here in Ireland, for example, we don't relate to glaciers melting because we haven't had them for about 10,000 years. Um, we will be affected directly due to things like sea level rise, but on local scales, these glaciers act as essentially water reservoirs. And there, there are quite a large populous regions that de- depend on glaciers as a source of fresh water. And even a study that came out recently was looking at the European Alps, which aren't too far away from us. And we are committed to losing at least half of our snow and ice in the European Alps by the end of the century if no more emissions take place and and, and potentially up to 90%. If, if no more emissions take exactly, place. Exactly, yeah. So that probably... Is going to be more so than when, when we go to Europe, we'll we'll see quite a different uh, quite a different landscape. And 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 again, that's that's a situation that's been repeated in places like the Himalaya, which supply fresh water to uh, p- very populous regions of Asia, and also in North and South America. I was looking in the course of my research the the UN Environment Report on the Arctic describes scenarios for twenty fifty and twenty eighty which um, are stark and, to be perfectly honest, really worrying and upsetting to me. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, the Arctic, of course, is it's, it's not a continent. It's actually a floating lump of very large ice. And I think we already mentioned that the Arctic region is warming a lot faster than the rest of the planet. So it looks like that by the end of this century or even, even sooner, uh, that the, there will be no sea ice in the Arctic uh, in in the summer months. And I know already some commercial bodies are trying to exploit this by looking at different shipping routes 
and, and ways of getting through that. So it's a big problem. And there are also other uh, issues related to this in terms of, of course, the ecosystems in the Arctic will undergo ma- major changes and the indigenous peoples up there will have to look at you know different ways of, of, of surviving. Uh, but on the scientific level, of course, the more that the, um, the Arctic sea ice melts, the bigger the problem it's going to present us with because one of the properties of snow and ice is that it reflects quite a lot of the incoming radiation from the sun back out into space. And we've already mentioned how good the oceans are at actually absorbing the heat coming in from the sun. So the less sea ice there is in the Arctic, there actually is um, a greater risk of what's called Arctic amplification, that the the waters in the Arctic will become warmer because there's no ice on top of them to reflect out the sunlight. And again, this is another case of what we call a positive feedback, that the less ice there is in the Arctic, the faster the global warming cycle becomes. And that is a real cause for concern. It's also like, you know, the thing that concerns me most is the fact that, you know, this the, the temperature rise, like it's, I think it's like three to five degrees by 2050 and, and maybe five to nine degrees by 2080, that this is essentially now locked in. We can't undo and we can only mitigate yeah. the rate at which it happens. And and that's that's what really was just it really brought it home to me like like reading that was just whoa yeah. and, <laughs> like, and, and again like it's 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 not it's not just that's going yeah. to happen it's what are the knock-on effects what the from knock-on, that yeah, in, exactly. in terms of circulatory patterns climate patterns all of this and in some of the instances we're, we're just not completely sure what's going to happen yeah. but we do know that with changes of that magnitude that there are going to be kind of major changes to circulation patterns within the atmosphere almost certainly Maybe going going into that then a bit more, obviously, uh, we've talked about how climate change will obviously affect air temperature and things like that. But in in broader weather terms, what kind of changes might we expect, uh, say, in terms of precipitation? Well, we've already mentioned, say, uh, that as the, the temperature of the Earth increases, that the capacity of the atmosphere to hold more water vapour also increases. So in a global sense, this means that there will be more water vapour or water available in the atmosphere to rain. So essentially this means that when rainfall events occur they will be heavier. So for example uh, hurricanes will have more moisture associated uh, with them so rainfall events, uh, severe rainfall events and flooding events which follow on from them will in all likelihood become uh, more severe. Uh, In the specific case of of Ireland at at our uh, latitudes it looks like over Ireland what we will see is that overall not a huge amount of change annually in the amount of rain, probably possibly a slight decrease, but a seasonal change in the sense that it looks like we will get more uh, rainfall in winter and more heavy rainfall days and less rainfall in the summer months with an increasing likelihood, say, of dry periods or droughts, as we would call them in parlance. <laughs> so, so essentially we're going to see a, a greater frequency of extremes. Is that right? We, we'll have sort of... Uh, when it's wet, it'll be wetter. When it's dry, it'll be dry. Yeah, I think in in a broad sense, that's really how, how it's going to, p- to pan out. And, and in seasons like the, the, the autumns and winters, wetter with more extreme rainfall events. The pa- rainfall patterns are, future rainfall patterns aren't, are a little bit more difficult to predict than the temperature. The temperature rise is, is, is a fairly uh, concrete, stable entity. The effects that it has on uh, rainfall patterns aren't quite as clear, but that's really what the evidence is showing is going to happen. So if you mentioned Ireland specifically there, um, and will Ireland be warming at a similar rate to the rest of the globe? Yeah, we, we think it will. It looks like the uh, the temperature changes in Ireland will more or less mirror the, the global changes, unless there's one of these kind of uh, low probability, high impact events like a change in the Atlantic circulation. But really, we don't expect that 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 is likely to happen. So we're looking at, again, an increase of 1.5 to 4 degrees by the end of of the century. Uh, Again, it looks like, uh, following on from that, that we will have, you know, less days with frost or ice, more days with uh, temperatures above 20 or 25 degrees, uh, what we call uh, summer days. I know in Ireland sometimes we, we think of summer days when we get a temperature of 18. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it looks like, generally speaking, we will uh, see milder winter with that frost and summers will be warmer uh, and drier uh, with more heat waves likely. 
are there knock-on effects of that to say our agriculture or sure yeah there's, there's quite some quite significant knock-on effects likely likely to occur I mean, firstly, at the colder end, there are certain species of trees and that require actually a dormant cold uh, period uh, during winter for them to grow. Uh, but at, at the other end, I mean, you could say, well, temperature rising, that, that's good news for us because, uh, you know, longer growing season, more crops. But it's not quite that straightforward, of course, because some of the, the, na- the native uh, uh, flora are used, they operate within a temperate climate zone. So they will become under stress if the temperature rises on a consistent basis above 30 degrees on a regular basis. So some of the indigenous fauna will become stressed. Also, some of the farming, the agricultural practices will also need to change. For example, you could say, well, uh, in the growing season will lengthen in terms of as regards temperature but if there are increasing droughts well then there won't be as much moisture available to feed the crops so you know there are all of these consequences that have to be examined and looked into so it's not very you know there's a lot of down, downstream consequences that aren't quite as obvious at first glance that need a kind of a lot of research to go into to find out exactly what we, what will happen uh, in terms of the flora uh, or the fauna then the, the, the animal life and insect life um, again, some animals will, will come under stress, particularly kind of animals in, in uh, coastal marine environments. And also, uh, we, we could become prone to kind of invasive species coming from Europe that previously weren't able, our climate essentially wasn't warm enough for these to exist here. And the same happens actually with animal diseases as with crop diseases. It applies equally, equally to, to both sectors. It's something I, I like just, you know, when you were talking there that I recall, like I'm, I think I was living in the south of England at the time in 2015. And um, I remember like I was working in meteorology still, um, but I was doing a, like a gas demand forecast and I had to do it on a Saturday morning. And um, I remember take like looking at the temperatures at nine o'clock in the morning and it was 19 degrees and it was the 19th of December and there were daffodils growing and it was unreasonably warm and it was just all very disconcerting and just um, like you know usually I I love spring as a season like you know it's one of my favourite times of the year but to have it when it shouldn't be happening it it was just so incongruous. Well this aspect of of, uh, the interaction between climate and weather and nature is called phenology Mm -hmm. and we do have kind of a network in Ireland of what we call phenological gardens for uh, looking at at the flora in fact, we have one at Valencia Observatory, John's, uh, I think the JFK Park in Wexford and the Botanic Gardens in Dublin. And at these locations, they've been, they've basically been growing the same cultivars of different types of, of plants since the 1960s. And they've been able to, on a consistent basis, note days when you know, first buds appear, when flowers appear, when the leaves turn brown when the leaves fall. And so there's quite a, a good data set on that. And I think from analysis of that, we, we, we can show that spring has, on average, over the last, say, 50 years, begun to arrive two to three weeks earlier than usual. Mm. Will Ireland still be a windy place in, in the next century? Yeah, I, anybody's hoping for uh, less kite, kite flying days is to be disappointed, I think. I think uh, the wind climate probably won't see much change um, we we're still likely to see, you know, winter storms. Uh, the again, it's a bit like what I was saying about temperature. What we expect with temperature and rainfall, we're fairly sure of what will happen with the temperature. Rainfall, not quite as certain that the the outputs aren't. We're, we're not quite as certain what's going to happen. And with wind, again, we, we're less uh, sure about what's going to happen. But it, it looks like we will still have winter storms. Perhaps not as not as many that we've had before. But maybe I think when winter storms occur, they could be more severe. So we will still see uh, a fair amount of winter storms and some severe storms. So basically the the effects and damage from these storms will be amplified with sea level and storm surge possibly? Or? Yeah, these are the kind of the, the, the main impacts that we'll be, mm-hmm. be looking at, at what's likely to happen. So if we have more severe storms, of course they cause more damage to infrastructure. And if we have, say, uh, 30 to 50 centimetre rise in sea level and add that to storm surge, coastal districts will become much more vulnerable to the effects of climate change. 
So a lot of the Irish infrastructure is actually around the coast, believe it or not. We have we have main cities. We have Dublin, Waterford, Cork, Limerick and Galway, mm. all in coastal locations. A lot of these, uh, co- these coastal cities uh, and coastal communities are vulnerable to, and we, we've seen this happening actually already on, on the west coast of Ireland. We, we see it happening uh, when, usually when winter storms occur. The worst impacts of this are seen when we get a coincidence of a severe weather event with a high tide. So it's, it's like, you know, things have to happen in conjunction for the worst case scenario to happen. But over a long period of time, it's fairly certain that these events will concur together. Together, yeah. And it does happen. In fact, for a couple for a couple of years there, it looked like every time there was a spring tide, there was a major storm with it. Now, <laughs> I can't guarantee that's going to happen in the future, but we can be fairly certain and we that it will happen and we have to be prepared for these type of things to happen because we need to prepare for the worst case scenario. I mean, in the climate change, uh, you know, scenario, what, what we have to look for is it's the, the mean rise in temperature isn't going to cause much damage. But what's going to cause damage is the extreme events when they occur. So it's the, the extreme storm events, the extreme windstorm events, the extreme rainfall events, they're what are going to cause most damage to infrastructure and cause most disruption to kind of the economy and most threats to public health. So when you're talking about winter storms that were affected by, and, and I guess even on a global scale, you know, big hurricanes and dramatic events that take the news, Often nowadays you hear a question of, well, is is this because of climate change? And, and can we attribute these individual events to climate change? Yeah, well, that's a question that we're asked uh, quite a lot. And uh, in short, the answer is yes, we can if we uh, spend a lot of time analysing uh, these events. Uh, but it requires quite a lot of scientific input. Uh, and usually this happens uh occurs or this type of research occurs after an event has happened. Uh, During an event at present, it's really not possible to say definitively if it was caused by climate change. But what we can say is that we do know that globally there has been uh, an increase in severe weather events and these have been linked in scientific studies to human-induced increase in greenhouse gas. So, for example, now when we get a heat wave, while the exact heat wave itself, we can't say very much about it, but we can say it's probably part of a global pattern of an increase in severe weather events of this nature that globally we've seen and has been scientifically analysed and shown that heat waves are more likely, that in some instances they can be three to four times more likely because of climate change. And in that context, we can actually link severe weather events to climate change because we know over a period of about 10 years, if you analyse events after they've happened, that it can be shown they've been more likely to have occurred because of climate change. It's like we've loaded the dice, that these weather events are random, but we've actually loaded it towards severe events so that they're more likely to occur because of climate change. But we couldn't say that a particular event was absolutely due to climate change, but we know the probability of severe events occurring has increased. Climate is an area that you're working in every day, obviously, and you're in connection with your colleagues and researchers who are putting you know, a lot of effort into, into understanding this science and have established you know, a very solid uh, understanding of what's taking place. Does it ever get frustrating being a climate scientist? Oh, it does, of course. I mean, there's always more to be done and you can't do everything. Um, but one message I'd, I'd just like to get out there is that we, we know the climate is changing and we know we need to uh, take action to prevent in as much as we can, the global temperature rising much above 1.5 or 2 degrees uh, Celsius. I think uh, one of the things is it's very, in, in climate science, you're working over you know long periods of time and you have to take the big picture. But yet we know we need to take action now. And that's not a normal way in which a climate scientist used, used to work. Of course, we all know now it has to do with, that has been a big, a big change. It used to be uh, that you know when a weather event occurred, um, it was the forecasters who looked after all of that. Now, when severe weather event occurs, almost immediately, the climate aspect is in the media. And it can be quite difficult to respond in a meaningful way, to say something meaningful in a climate sense, unless a a record is absolutely broken there and then. It can be quite difficult to respond in a meaningful way. There are a lot of demands to make comments of it in, in terms of 
of you know climate change and we, we, we need to kind of work a little bit more on how we're going to communicate that to people and how to communicate the links between meteorology, weather and climate and climate change to bring it all in together in, in a way that we maintain kind of the scientific integrity of what's happening but yet we have a clear message to send out to people that the climate is changing that we need to take action now to prevent a worst case scenario occurring. Solid words there, Seamus. Um, it's been very interesting to talk to you today. Um, thank you so much for coming um, and please continue with the good work. Thank you very you much. I, re- I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll now go over to Paul Moore, who will be joining us each episode to give a summary of Ireland's recent weather. Today, Paul is going to give us the details on how our weather has been this spring. Here are the seasonal highs and lows for spring 2019 based on data from Metacurrent's 25 synoptic weather stations. Following on from a mild winter, it was milder and wetter than average almost everywhere for spring. The sunniest place was in the southwest where Cork Airport recorded 505 hours of sunshine, 11% above average for the season. By contrast, Dublin Airport had just 401 hours of sunshine, which is 13% below average while Knock Airport had just 317 hours, 23% below average. The wettest place was Newport, County Mayo, with 441.7mm of precipitation for the season, which is 33% above average. The driest place was Casement Aerodrome, County Dublin, with 182.1mm, which is still 13% above average. The wettest day of the season was at Cork Airport on the 15th of April, with 54.6mm of rainfall, which is Cork Airport's wettest spring day on record, going back 56 years. The highest mean temperature for the season was on Shirkin Island, County Cork, with a seasonal mean temperature of 10 degrees Celsius, which is just 0.1 degrees Celsius above its average, while the lowest seasonal mean temperature was 8.2 degrees Celsius at Knock Airport, which is 0.5 degrees Celsius above its average. The highest temperature for the season was reported at Oak Park, County Carlow, on Easter Monday, April the 20th, with 22.9 degrees Celsius. The lowest temperature was reported at Moor Park, County Cork, on the 5th of April, with minus 3.4 degrees Celsius. There were three named storms, Freya, Gareth and Hannah, that affected Ireland during spring 2019. The highest 10-minute mean wind speed was reported at Macehead, County Galway, on the 26th of April, during Storm Hannah, with 96 km an hour. The highest gust of the season was reported at Mallonhead, County Donegal on the 12th of March during Storm Garrett with 130 kilometres per hour. Thanks very much, Paul. Paul will be back again next month to give the climate report for June. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Our thanks again to Seamus Walsh for joining us in studio. Thanks also to Alan Bennett at Headstuff. Gavin Gallagher and the communications team at MedAaron, and in particular to you, the listener. We hope you've enjoyed this first episode, and if you'd like to find out more about the topics discussed today, be sure to check out the information on our webpage at met.ie forward slash podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on the webpage or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. If you'd like to reach out with any comments, questions or suggestions, you can get in touch using the MetAaron Twitter and Facebook pages using the hashtag MetAaronPodcast or by emailing us at podcast at met.ie. Also, be sure to check out the Irish language version of this podcast presented by Ferdia McCran. In the upcoming series, we will explore a wide range of topics from what causes Ireland's weather to the mechanics of hurricanes and what it's like to be a storm chaser. We hope you'll join us for our next episode on July 10th. But for now, we will leave you with the sound of the Met Air Choir, the Isobars, conducted by Aoife Murray with Donald Black on piano and Linda Hughes on violin. This is Saura Saura. Thanks for listening. Take care.
So. 